Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. My name is Tobias Zimmergren, and I'm back here with Yusip Reune. What's up? Hey, Toby. So a fun thing happened last week. And you always sort of know this is going to be fun if I say it's going to be fun. I paid a visit to a physiotherapist. And I first went to the doctor's office because my left hamstring has been killing me, especially with, with, with the gym thing I'm doing. It's been troubling me a bit. So I went to the doctor's office and, and the doctor, you know, they just look at Google nowadays. They don't really look you in the eye. And he said, yeah, you need to see a, see a specialist. So I booked a time with a physiotherapist. And I think I've never visited one before, so, so my expectations were nil. I show up, uh, she opens the doors and, door and says, okay, get, get naked, but please leave your underwear on. We're, we're finished, so we're quite comfortable with that. And then before I knew it, I was, I was on the floor being kind of, kind of uh, put into different positions. Oh, does it hurt here? Does it hurt there? And funny thing is, that after that 45 minutes, I get a list of things I now need to do on my own, so small stretching exercises and activations for certain muscles. And I've been doing that for a week now, and I'm already better. So perhaps if this IT thing is not working out, I might become a physiotherapist in the future. Or just go get massage, because that's also nice. <laughs> that's definitely nice. And, and I've actually been getting a massage uh, every two weeks for a year now. It helps quite a bit. But then in between, on those two weeks, you sort of start to deteriorate in between. And that probably tells more about, more about my age than about anything else. Yeah. I mean, this, this is uh, recalling... Uh, I recall when I was... I did a lot of martial arts over the years, maybe 15 years in total. All my trainers always iterated. Stretching is the most important thing. Not for today, not for today's practice, but for the rest of your life. And that kind of resonates well still. And, and it's very imprinted in, in me since those early years. So I, I totally get it. I also do stretching a lot. But when I don't, I kind of neglect it. I have the same issues. You know, you start cracking up a bit. And when you move, you know, too, too quickly or, or turn your hip or your shoulders or whatever, you, you hear these cracks in the body. And... That's kind of your, your sign that, uh-oh, Toby, you kind of neglected stretching, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, stretching for me is in the top three things I actively dislike. So the top one is Swedish grammar, uh, top two is broccoli, and top three is stretching now. But I, I think yeah, I'll get to add more stuff in the So what's, what's up with you? So for me, I'm doing something very analog. And I know we talked in the past about when we talked about the Swedish words and the Finnish words, we talked about something called a kuksa, which is the Finnish word for a wooden cup. Uh, one of these that you carve out of birch, which is the, usually a birch. So you get a, a big piece of wood. And then from there, you kind of use an ax or, or knives or whatever tools you want to kind of carve out your, your own wooden drinking cup. So I'm doing that this week. So this week I am going into the woods with a friend we're gonna find some some birch because we know there's a lot of that going around uh, in these areas, and we'll just spend an entire day trying to build 
two kuksas and maybe even a plate if time allows so we have something to eat on, not just drink coffee. So yeah, that's that's my, it's not what I've been up to. It's more the planning of it that I've been up to and I'm going to exercise this activity this week. So perhaps next week you will hear the results of it. If you do not hear the results, don't ask. Then I, then I don't have anything to show for. <laughs> so next week, if we don't get to see a picture of your new flashy custom-made kuksa, then we'll all assume that you went to the supermarket and bought one for nine euros. Exactly. Yeah. Alrighty. So today's episode is about digesting announcements from Microsoft Ignite 2020. We already had one episode where we discussed about the security announcements and now we figured it would be nice to have a look at everything else that they announced. And perhaps we sort of touched upon this, this topic a little bit uh, previously. There's, there's a lot of announcements and some of those are major announcements. Then there's these tiny things. And sometimes I think it happened more with Bilge this year in May that they had already sort of released something, but then three weeks later during build, they would announce that, oh, now it's actually available. But I saw this less with Ignite. So a lot of the things they announced, I really felt on the day of the announcement that this is now something new that's now available for me. Yeah. So what's your sort of favorite topic we should, we should begin with? I mean, where do I even begin? I really liked how they delivered Ignite. I really liked the the amount of content. And I tried to stay online and, and stay up to date with all the announcements. It's impossible. So now afterwards, I've been able to digest a little bit. And one of the things that I work a lot with is Azure App Services, because we, we operate functions, we operate different types of web apps and APIs, and a lot of them are hosted in Azure App Services. And uh, there's a couple of updates here that I like and that I think is important to, uh, to be aware of. Uh, one is something called RI or reserved instances, which is now also coming to app services. And with that, you can get discounts between 35 and 55%, depending on if you want to reserve uh, for one year or three year commitments. So that's like, we also had this with uh, different types of VMs where you could uh, reserve a VM for X amount of time and doing so gave you a monthly discount of the total price. So that's the same thing now happening with Azure App Services, which is pretty cool. There's also a new premium V3 plan coming. Uh, well, it's actually there, so I think you can try it out. Uh, it's more powerful, two, four, and eight core options. So if you want you know, more cores, you can kind of juice it up here. And you can also stretch the memory all the way to 32 gigabytes. So if you are coming from like an enterprise world, you want to put your enterprise apps quicker into the cloud and you don't have perhaps the option to uh, deploy a microservice solution right now, you have a big web app, then this might be an option for that. Uh, and combine, combine this also with the, the RI or the reserved instances, you can even save up to 69% of the cost. So that's pretty cool. So there's a pretty good announcement for me who know that I will be operating app services for several years in a specific scenario and for specific applications, I know that it will make sense for me to reserve uh, some instances for that and then do my both capacity and cost planning accordingly. On top of that, also around app services, they announced Windows containers, which is now generally available. 
So with the V3 premium plan, there is a full support for regional network integration, private link and managed server identity and a whole bunch of things. So all this uh, kind of lift and ship, shift uh, of taking a bigger variety of .NET apps and take then full advantage of the new features of the app services become even easier when you containerize it. Now you can do that with Windows containers. So that's also a very welcome update. There's also something now called isolated V2 plans. In the past, there was something called isolated V1 uh, or just isolated, but now the uh, public preview starts uh, now in October and it's a simplified deployment experience for isolated app hosting. So this is ideal for uh, running a more sensitive workload because this is a single tenant system. So now you can run Azure App Services single tenant. Um, and when you do this using the V2, uh, you can also remove the per instance stamp fee uh, that you had with V1. So you're essentially being allowed to do cost savings again up to 80%. So with V1, when you kind of use that because it was a single uh, single tenant service, you had this stamp fee or one-time fee, like if you wanna do this, it's gonna cost you this much to get started they remove that with a V2. And that is something I really like. So if you have sensitive workloads and stuff like that, you wanna put them in an app service, the isolated V2 plan might be something to look at. Uh, and then the final thing with Azure App Services is GitHub Actions integrations. Uh, I've wrote about that in the past and a lot, I know a lot of people have looked at uh, GitHub Actions, which is essentially a way to automate your workflows, kind of similar to what Azure DevOps have in pipelines and releases. Now with uh, the App Service Deployment Center, you also integrate GitHub Actions. So you can get everything at your fingertips visible directly from the Azure portal. You get the instructions for how to use it and you can get the insights when it was last deployed and all of that stuff, when that's coming from a uh, GitHub Action, which more and more people are embracing and using. Uh, so yeah, that was a lot of insights, a lot of things I tried to digest that as much as I could, uh, but Azure App Services, if you're working with that, these are very welcome updates. That's, that's a lot of updates, and I often feel with Azure App Services that they have been around for so long that you sort of get used that this is the, this is the set of features I get with App Services. Very happy to see the Windows containers going GA with this, so definitely taking, taking these updates for a spin. Uh, another thing that caught my eye with the Ignite announcements was Azure SQL Edge is now generally available. And I can't say that I've tried this, but, but the more I read about this, the more I figured, okay, I really need to put some time aside and, and, and get started with this. So what this means is that you can run Azure SQL instance on an ARM64 or x64 uh, architecture. So this means Windows or Linux, and it allows you to run Azure SQL on the edge, meaning you get uh, data storage, you get uh, additional capabilities for your AI requirements, and this you can then deploy in an, in an IoT setup or architecture. Typically that would perhaps be an embedded device that would need local data store, but also some additional features that you get with Azure SQL now on the edge. And last time when we talked about the security announcements, I remember that uh, 
we had a lot of discussion on the different Azure Defender services because they changed all of the namings on those. So now with Azure Defender for IoT, and, and which partially seems to be based on the CyberX acquisition that Microsoft did some time ago, uh, you could combine these two. So you could deploy Azure SQL Edge, and then you can have Azure Defender for IoT to see what sort of traffic is happening between your IoT devices and your outbound traffic. And, and these two are probably some of the things that I'll, I'll be sure to put some time aside, perhaps next weekend, to deploy them and see how they actually work. It sounds pretty interesting. And I really like this idea with Azure SQL on the edge. And we see a lot of new things coming with the edge. So I think that the more capabilities here, the better. So this acquisition with CyberX is also a, a thing in the right direction, I believe. Um, one thing that I was looking at is AKS. I know we talked about Azure Kubernetes services in the past. There's some updates here that I like. I guess there's a lot of updates, but the ones that caught my eye is that with AKS, you now have a stop and start switch, all right? Because in the past it was, you have your cluster, period. You can scale up and down. You could scale down to one node, but that's still one VM. And for me, when we were operating our bigger clusters, we had the node size was pretty substantial. We had pretty big VMs for that. So even when we didn't use, if it was a dev or testing cluster and we want to shut it down for three weeks, we kind of had to delete it. So I think that is, is mitigated in, in different ways already. But then I also see this stop and start kind of switch as a great thing when you do dev and testing workloads, where you say, okay, let's bring it back online and all the configuration and everything is as you left it. So you keep the cluster configuration in place. So I really like that. The other thing related AKS that I noticed that caught my eye is Azure policy on AKS is now generally available. And I think I mentioned this in a previous episode where uh, you could kind of use Azure Security Center and then you had policies that could look into your clusters. So now you can do that in GA. This is now uh, released to the public and there's uh, auditing and enforced policy capabilities that you can do with your Kubernetes clusters. So you can now set up Azure policies and be alerted when you're failing compliance and things like that also for the, the AKS integration, which I... You know, I really like that. Um, something I missed when I actively used AKS. So this is definitely something I can see the value of. I might just go and spin up one AKS cluster just to see the stop-start switch, how it looks. <laughs> so uh, the next one on my list is Azure Arc updates. And, and we talked initially about Azure Arc in episode 22. So that was what, about six months ago? And the, the whole idea with Azure Arc is that you can expand and extend your, your management capabilities from Azure to different platforms, typically on-premises or perhaps in a multi-cloud strategy to something else. And Azure Arc now got a couple of really interesting updates. And the first one being the general availability of Azure Arc for Windows and Linux servers. I'm, I'm saying servers, but typically you mean virtual machines. So if you have Windows and Linux workloads in your on-prem, now you can manage and push your policies from Azure using Azure Arc to those VMs. This was in public preview before. 
And then a couple of interesting public reviews now for Azure Arc as well. Uh, the first one is Azure Arc enabled SQL Server and Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes. So if you run those elsewhere, you can now extend the management and logging and monitoring capabilities of Azure using Azure Arc to your SQL servers and Kubernetes clusters. And the last one is Azure SQL Managed Instance and Azure PostgreSQL Hyperscale. So these are in public preview as well. So depending on what sort of workloads you have, typically in a, in a hybrid setup, you can now employ Azure Arc to extend and reach those different branch offices and, and distant on-prem environments and, and have this, as they like to call it, single pane of glass to manage everything through one central point. And Azure Arc is sort of the, the, the gateway engine in here that enables the connectivity between these services. Yeah, I like the, the sound of that. I still haven't used Azure Arc that much, but I, I do keep an eye on all the announcements streaming out of Microsoft. And there's a lot of people that seem to like how it works and the way it looks. So uh, an idea for a future episode is to bring a guest um, on the show who has worked a lot with it uh, to bring their experiences. I think that would be extremely insightful. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And Azure Arc on the surface, it's, it's fairly simple. It's super easy to deploy. But once you start deploying that and figuring out what you do with it, uh, it, it sort of reminds me of Azure Sentinel, that on the surface, it, it looks rather simple. But the more you deploy and in more enterprise environments you use it, the more capabilities it sort of starts to light up. And then you need to better understand what's happening with hybrid. And also you need to understand what's happening with the, with the sort of legacy on-prem environments that you perhaps left behind when you jumped to the cloud. And now you sort of reach back to see, oh, what did we have here again? Let's take a control of this as well. Makes sense. So on, on my list, another very interesting update is Visual Studio 2019 now supports GitHub Codespaces. So GitHub Codespaces is still in preview or, or a closed beta. So if, if you are a customer of Visual Studio Codespaces that were the, the initial launch, then you will have received an email where you can say, click here to kind of receive access or request access to the preview program for Codespaces on GitHub. What I like about this is that Visual Studio 2019, which is one of my main tools in my everyday life, I have Visual Studio Code, I have Visual Studio 2019 Enterprise, and the reason for that is we also build, you know, enterprise-grade, scalable, huge solutions with a lot of microservices, and some of the things are, you know, still kind of monolith in a way because in in some organizations it's very difficult to just snap your fingers and get a microservice architecture. So now you can use Visual Studio 2019 if you're still using that and not just VS Code to create and manage your code spaces within the IDE so you don't have to only use the browser. Uh, so this kind of expands on the existing support of VS Code and the browser-based editing. And now we get the, the more kind of enterprise-grade code space uh, experience. So work anywhere, work remotely, onboard new devs to the team without the need for complicated uh, development environments and configurations, stuff like that. You know, cloud-hosted development environments uh, directly with GitHub Code Spaces now also enables you to work with them directly from Visual Studio 2019. 
So I really like this and I want to kind of emphasize that. A lot of times I go on Twitter, a lot of times I go in different forums, I see people talk about Visual Studio Code and code spaces. And that's, you know, the only thing, but there's a lot of people asking for support from Visual Studio 2019, because in reality, a lot of people are using this tool for their enterprise projects and for, you know, whatever projects they have in their, in their organizations. And now, this is a very welcome introduction. Uh, so I know I will use it. I don't have access to this uh, GitHub code spaces uh, preview yet, so I will just wait until it's GA, and then I will uh, take a look and see if this, uh, this is something we can use for our teams, because it, it kind of alleviates all the work, working power or computing power from your laptop to the cloud. So you can now build these complex solutions in the cloud, and you can use kind of like a thin client, uh, which is what I really like. And then you can go on a different device, Open Visual Studio, and just sign in, and you get the same configuration and everything like that. So this is Pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that. I, I more often open Visual Studio 2019 than VS Code nowadays because I often need to build a, I, I often start building a custom command line tool to figure out something. And VS Code is not, not too helpful there for me. And, and one of the greatest things with Visual Studio 2019 is IntelliSense helping me type out my, my code. But uh, I was writing an email this morning using Outlook whatever it is now, Outlook Pro plus Microsoft 365. And I, I think I'm, I'm on an insider build. And, and what it now has, Outlook has the same sort of intelligence support. So when I'm writing, especially in English, and I'm about to write, thank you, talk to you soon. And after I've written thank you, and I hit C, it auto-completes, it gives me options. Oh, did you mean to write like this? And I can just tab my way through the emails. So now with, with coding, I can use tab, but also in emails. So I'm super happy now. Then the next one, Azure Logic Apps. This was interesting. Uh, it has a new runtime and performance and developer improvements. So there's VS Code integration, which is great, but it's also now easier to use Azure Functions from Logic Apps. And this has often been one of the perhaps a bit more clumsy, clumsier way of extending your logic apps. You're building something perhaps using Azure Portal or Visual Studio, and then you need to sort of branch out to a custom Azure function. And it was a bit clumsy to sort of get those connected together. So there's a promise now that this is easier for developers now. But this also seems to extend to the fact that Wherever Azure Functions is capable of running, Azure Logic Apps is capable of running now, which means you can use it, uh, Logic Apps in a, in a container. So a Docker container or in a Kubernetes cluster or in an app service environment. And I think, I haven't checked this yet, but I think this also means you can also expand this to on-premises. So you could spin up a Docker container and have that container locally run a Logic Apps that does whatever it needs to do. And the last thing for Azure Logic Apps is the new designer. And I think we've had the current designer for a couple of years now. And while it's quite okay, if you sort of know what you're doing, you quickly need to walk through some things. It's infuriatingly slow at times to iterate through the different actions that you can do. It seems like it's not caching that much. So I, I, I haven't gotten the new designer yet, but when I get it, 
uh, I, I will definitely try out building a couple of logic apps to see if my workflow is now improved as, as the promise goes. Yeah, I totally missed that announcement. And now I'm very curious. I kind of liked or agreed with the previous editor or I could kind of work with it. But, you know, an, an updated experience here is very welcome. So I'm, I'm definitely going to take a look at that. Another thing on my mind is perhaps not directly Azure related, but .NET 5 is in RC or release candidate and feature complete and it's available on November 10. So the roadmap for .NET 5 is already set in stone. They already know when the next version .NET 6 is going to come and stuff like that. Um, so what I like is um, you can build single file applications and with .NET 5, you get better memory optimizations and it's kind of decide, uh, designed better for microservices and containers. So, and they are kind of ideal workloads to run on, on .NET 5. Um, you do have a go live license with it. So not LTS. So you can use it in production, but there is no long-term supportability in place yet because it's an RC. So as soon as the .NET 5 goes GA, you will then get the, the LT, LTS support. And there's a couple of things that just caught my eye and that I kind of dabbled with in, in .NET 5, which is uh, there's a new type of keyword that you will see a, a lot more often. And I think this comes with C Sharp 9. There's a new keyword called init. And you can now create a property. And then you say init instead of get set, you can do get init. And that means the setter can only be used when you initialize the object. So then you have to set that property at, at the init time of the object, and then you can never change it or you can never set it again. So that's a, a pretty cool new uh, keyword. And that is also something that kind of enables something they have called records, which is a new immutable type of object. I'm not going to dive into details what that is, but that's a pretty big thing. Um, in the show notes, we are putting the link to the .NET 5 announcements. Um, and the final thing around .NET, which is why I kind of wanted to put it in here, uh, there is now a very welcome extension that they fully integrate now into, for example, the HTTP client. Uh, so now you can do get from JSON async. Because in the past, you had to use a JSON parsing library like Newtonsoft or the, the system text or whatever. And then you had to use the HTTP client. When you got your results, you had to then deserialize it into whatever object you needed, right? Now that's built in with an extension method in the HTTP client. And I work a lot with Azure APIs and REST APIs. So now I can kind of reduce the clutter or the overhead with my parsing library and do that directly from the HTTP client and said, whenever I get my data back from Azure, I already had have the get from JSON async and I can just do whatever I want with my objects. Pretty cool. Okay, this last thing I need to try out because I have different sorts of things running in the background and, and they often rely on HTTP client for a lot of things. And I always sort of struggle, how do I parse this? How do I get this? So this, this seems like it will simplify a lot of my thinking and perhaps a lot of my code. Another thing on .NET 5, and I think this was part of C-sharp 9. I saw the announcement perhaps a month ago that they have a new data type called Hoth. Have you used that yet? It was called what? Hoth. So not, not, not int or, or, or uh, string or anything else. It's, it's half. It's half of something. Okay, uh, no, no. And I, 
I read through the announcement. I'm like, mm, yeah, I've never really needed this, but perhaps this is good. So I need to try that too. So, so can you uh, can you kind of put that on on any value type? So you can do half an integer, or is that the idea, or you don't know? No, I, I think it's it's more like uh, an integer, which with, with with a more limited memory space. So 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 you you will use less. Uh, you you will have a smaller footprint. Uh, for some specific, perhaps, floating points. And this is a month ago that I quickly sort of looked through the announcement and I, I wasn't really sure why would I need this again. So perhaps somebody <laughs> I, listening... I have no idea what it is. So so let's put a link in the show notes if we find yeah. it. And... So somebody listening on this might go, hey, you see, you don't know anything about this. Let me tell you how it goes. So I'm, I'm anxious to get any feedback on this before I actually use it. Uh, so this one is quite small, but I think it's highly useful. It's called Azure Resource Mover, and it simplifies moving resources between regions or between uh, resource groups. And what you often need to do is you've deployed something, oh, it needs to be elsewhere, or we're restructuring stuff. So now in Azure Portal, you have a new button called Move, and it gives you the different options. But you can also use this from PowerShell, Azure CLI, or through the REST API. So this is a more unified way of moving resources between different structures that you have in place. And, and the documentation sort of aims to give you the peace of mind, the confidence that things will actually move as you intended to. I've had a couple of uh, mishaps happen before we had Azure Resource Mover. I had one DNS zone in one of my resource groups. I needed to move that to a different RG in a different subscription that I could still manage. So I initiated the move. This was about six months ago. It completed. It never landed in the destination RG, and it was lost from the source RG. Oh, nice. It, it sort of just disappeared. And then I had to do all sorts of trickery to, to get, get rid of that. So I'm always very hesitant when I move something that I know is in production or something that I only have a single instance of, which might be of importance to me. So I quickly tried this out. It did what it promised to do, but I'm, I've yet to try this in a, in a real world scenario, which often means Sunday evening, 10 o'clock, this has to work on Monday at nine. So let's, let's not break anything. But I will update in the future when I've had a chance to use this. All right, sounds cool. So I have a single thing left on my mind that are kind of the, the bigger announcements for me at least. Um, the Azure Private Marketplace, and that's in preview. So the Azure Private Marketplace is pretty much pre-approved solutions for your employees in the organization. So uh, you make sure the offers comply with company policies and regulations, and then you deploy only solutions that match your organization's rules. So instead of allowing people access to Azure and be contributors in a resource group and be able to create any new resource, with the Azure private marketplace, you can kind of restrict and allow uh, what type of solutions you can deploy from that marketplace. So now you can enable your organization to use the Azure Private Marketplace and a handful or a dozen or hundreds, whatever type of applications you want to allow, you can kind of say, here's what we can deploy, here's what we can use, this is what the, the users in the organization can do, 
And then you kind of can control that with policies, which is something that I really like. This looks super useful. Uh, I had a quick look at the documentation for this. I was sort of expecting it to be this enterprisey focused approach that you need to do this, this and this, and then perhaps something lands 24 hours later. But this looks easy. You, you grant the admin role, perhaps with PowerShell, who gets to, gets to admin the private marketplace. Then you go to Azure Marketplace to create a private marketplace. And then you click through the different options that I want to have this, this, and this in our private marketplace. Looks, looks really good. It's slick. Uh, it's a great experience, yeah. 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 So I've got one more, and it's Azure Backup Updates. And I do know a couple of people, a couple of friends that if, if I meet them, and this was perhaps a year ago when we still traveled more, if I meet them and we have lunch and they might ask, hey, Yussi, so what's your conference uh, session topic going to be about? I might say Azure Backup or, or Azure Governance. And, and, and they would, they would uh, act as if they were falling asleep. But bear with me, Azure Backup Updates. So there is a new Azure Backup Center now available. And as I said before, this gives you a single pane of glass to manage backups at scale. So if you have 500 Windows VMs, 200 Linux VMs, and you just want to get backups done, this is the, this is the tool for that. And interestingly, it also supports Azure Lighthouse. So, so we haven't really had a separate episode on Azure Lighthouse, but I recall we've, we've sort of spoken about this a couple of times. So Azure Lighthouse is intended for managed service providers, MSPs, to, to uh, authorize and get access to their clients' Azure tenants so that it's secure and, and you can actually enforce different sort of things through there. So Azure Backup Center supports Lighthouse tenants. So as an MSP, Let's say you have 20 customers. You could now use Azure Backup Center to have a look at all of those customers and how are our backups doing now. For now, only Azure VMs are supported and Azure Database for PostgreSQL are supported. And there's this huge matrix for different special cases that you need to account for. So we also added the link, link in the show notes in there. So whenever somebody talks about backup, I'm always happy I don't have to go back to the old LTO and DLT tapes in a, in a shady window, windowless data center where you go and switch to different cartridges and you just hope that the backup completed in time. So if this makes it any easier, I'm always happy. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. I think that's it for my updates. Do you have anything else to add? Ah, uh, no, no. And I, I think it's already clear to everybody that the book of news from Ignite was announced. Um, it's, an, it's, it's a website where you can see all of the announcements. There's a lot of announcements. And, and I feel we perhaps picked the, the interesting ones that not all of them are, are super obvious. So have a look at the, the latest announcements. Have a look at these changes. And I'm sure we'll, we'll sort of revisit some of these in coming episodes. And, and that's it. That's it. Thanks for listening, as always. And until next time. All right. See you then. Thank 
you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.